This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Our first guests for the morning have joined us in the studio. We're going to talk about a show called The Age of Bones, which is on at the La Mama Courthouse Theatre in Faraday Street, Carlton. As always, when talking about a La Mama show, quick disclaimer, I'm on the Committee of Management at La Mama. I don't benefit financially from uh, promoting La Mama shows, but it is always a little bit of a conflict of interest, so I just like to acknowledge that and get that out of the way first. But I'm now, now joined in the studio by Pippa Bailey, who's the producer of The Age of Bones, and Alex Galliard who is the co-director. Welcome to you both. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. Now, Pippa, it's kind of rare that producers come in to talk about shows, but this is an, uh, an interesting one because um, you're, you're involved with Performing Lines, who are an organisation who tour independent work around Australia. Um, so talk to us about how The Age of Bones initiated as a production uh, and why Performing Lines have got involved with it because it's not just performing here in Melbourne, it's moving on elsewhere as well. So it's a great question Richard because in fact I'm not I'm not the producer, I'm the co-producer. There's a lot of co's on this show. And I'm the co-producer with writer Sandra Thibodeau. Um, the way in which Performing Lines got involved was that I was in Darwin, happened to be at Darwin Festival, and The Age of Bones was having a reading as part of a new development of work in the festival. And I went along and saw various things, but this play really struck me as being very exciting, a very clever way of dealing with a difficult issue and an amazing international co-production and collaboration. So I approached Sandra and um, said, look, do you need some help? (laughs) And basically I think what's really interesting about this production is it's, it, there's lots of different cultures going on and there's different cultures within Australia. So it, it, what it means to make work in Darwin is very different to what it means to make work in Sydney and Melbourne. And she had such grand ambitions, rightly, for this work. It was great to be able to come in and say, I'll lend a hand. Now, I understand she took inspiration from uh, a court case and an ongoing issue back in 2011 when uh, Indonesian uh, people fishing in Australian waters were arrested. Among them were a group of children. Now, the Australian officials either didn't want to believe or couldn't prove that they were children, so they incarcerated them in adult jails. And so the the play takes inspiration of that, but told, I believe, and, and Alex, correct me if I'm wrong, told from what the perspective of the Indonesian parents whose child goes missing at sea one day and never returns. Yeah, very much from the Indonesian parents' point of view. Uh, a very, very touching part of the play, the the essence of family and what it means to potentially lose two children and not know where where that child has gone but Sandra's cleverly weaved the serious narrative into um, a kind of magic realism conceit so all the court scenes are actually I don't want to give too much away but all the court scenes are set uh, underwater and the judge is an octopus and the lawyer is a white pointer and it's kind of this incredible seascape, beautiful seascape. So she's interwoven those ideas into something that's quite fantastical. It sounds already intriguing just because of the political angle, the human aspect, and then, as you say, this kind of magic realist touch that comes into it. How do you evoke an undersea of environment in independent theatre? 
Well, I have to say that's been a major challenge, but we are blessed with having um, digital artist Mick Grucci, uh, who's done a lot of work at various scales, and he has, he has video that creates the underwater. And the other very important part of the show is that we have a Wyong puppet puppeteers from Bali. So the combination of the the dalang which means puppeteer and and the video means that we can evoke the underwater. Have you directed much puppetry before? <laughs> uh, actually no, this is um my initiation. But uh we did an amazing creative development on the island of Rote uh with Sandra and the puppeteers uh and Mick so all of the uh, work within the production is actually from the island. So he filmed underwater, he filmed locations, and that's what's being projected in the show. So it's very, very authentic. And we work with the Dalang after that within those landscapes. So it's projected landscapes and shadow puppets within that, also telling the story, which lends itself to young audiences as well. So it appeals to adults, it really appeals to um, young young audience too. Which is fantastic because often uh, theatre experiences are for one or the other. So finding a show that works for multiple generations simultaneously is, uh, I think, quite important and perhaps quite a feat as well. I think it's also really important for the subject matter. Um, in terms of this story is about boys, kids. They were teenagers, 14 and 15 years old. And so we wanted to be able to have a younger audience come and be able to engage in some of these issues. Australia's become very polarised on the subject of refugee boats. And so to have something that is lyrical and that fleshes out some of the intricacies of the story is really great. Now, if we're talking about intricacies, one of the things that intrigues me is the intricacies of um, uh, collaboration. Because uh, collaborating on any project with a group of artists is always fraught with, I need to understand your artistic discipline and your the, your creative approach. Uh, for this production, The Age of Bones, you've, I imagine, turned the, the difficulty factor up to 11 because this is uh, a collaboration between Australian artists and Indonesian artists as well. So talk to us about that. Has the language barrier been an issue, for example? Has the, the, the physical distance been an issue? Well, I think we've, uh, for me personally, uh, I had the great opportunity of going with Sandra to, um, to Lampung in Sumatra and uh, to be part of that theatre company, Theatre Satu, which are the actors and the co-director, Iswadi. Um, it's their, their baby there and very, very well established and very, very highly regarded. So for me, being in situ, going to their rehearsal space, living in Lampung, being hosted by the university there, it was kind of a very, very holistic engulfment of, um, of experience. And I think possibly for the first couple of weeks, to be perfectly honest, I sat there and just absorbed because they rehearse, interestingly, they work all day and then they rehearse from 6pm to midnight after a full day's work. And uh, it's this incredible commitment. They do amazing warm-ups and it's very much like a family. After rehearsals, we all sit around and eat and there's this big debrief from every person in the company about what went on in that rehearsal period and it's beautiful and it's family and it's warm and I think, you know, I learned a lot from that kind of collaborative element. And then as I started to get more confident, get a bit more familiar with the language because obviously 
I don't speak Indonesian, but I got a sense of how they worked and the language. And obviously, we've got two Australian actors, so there's Australian scenes. It became a very seamless process then, and it's so wonderful to have them back here in Melbourne, which they're loving. Um, to see their joy on their faces experiencing our culture reciprocally. For people who don't work in the theatre sector, how different, um, I'm thinking just to, to explain to our listeners uh, just how different that creative process that you've just described is to a, a normal creative development here in, in Melbourne or here in Australia. Well, a rehearsal process in Australia is very much um, quite scheduled, you know, normally a, a ten, 10 to 6 day or a 9 to 6 day, a working day, you know, so they're, they're there, as I said, from 6pm to midnight. Uh, their stage management and organisation around those rehearsals is kind of very much to do with food, snacks, uh, everyone's a friend. The designers, you know, they've worked with the same designers for many, many years. The set was being built in this tiny little alleyway that was crowd- madly crowded, but suddenly these beautiful costumes just kind of grew out of this this kind of primitive situation. So it's very much each person will take a role in production or acting and then they're all gently comes together in their own time, which is quite different to Australia where it's very, very locked into this will be done by then, we rehearse from this time to this time, you take your lunch break and you often peel off and go and get your own food. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to add to that because I think it's this is a uh, a script-based work and certainly in script-based theatre it's absolutely as Alex describes but of course Performing Lines works with a lot of independent artists and in the mixed media world of independent arts there's more of this more fluid roles and less demarcation and so on. I think what's also been really, really interesting is just how those two worlds come together and particularly with an added element of a lot of technology because there's uh, a lot of blackouts in Lumpur. They don't rely so much on electricity and, of course, we expect that we've got electricity all the time and we can do what with that as we will. Except perhaps when you're living in South Australia. Well, but, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> but I think very there's something true. really interesting about how the cultures of this very demarcated world comes together with something that actually Australian theatre's kind of lost, an ensemble of players who play together all the time and that's been really beautiful to watch. And that notion of creative play, I think, is so important because, yes, it's absolutely vital to take uh, the performing arts seriously and professionally, but at the same time to, to re-instill a sense of play, that you are that the actors are players, that people are participating and creating and collaborating and building this, this playful approach together. It sounds like it would be a... Uh, I don't know. I think it, I hope it would result in an even richer, warmer, more in, engaging work. Well, I think yeah, we, it's been, you know, having done the Indonesian season and then brought it back to Australia, the essence of that, that was something that was very much in both all of our minds to not um, strangle that essence of play, that essence of joy from the Indonesian ensemble. So bringing it back to Australia, that was in the forefront of our, our minds. I mean, one very funny experience, an opening night in Indonesia, there was a blackout and it was for significant, quite a few minutes. Six minutes. Six minutes. But the ingenuity of the Indonesians, they just got a torch and put it on the screen and the puppets kept, it just kept going. Literally, you know, 
potentially in an Australian um, theatre, we just kind of stop and wait. But no, we just get a torch, we shine it on the puppets and we keep going. It was a beautiful thing. It was a perfect example of everyone working together as a, as a cooperative and a collaborative um, team. We're talking about uh, an Australian-Indonesian co-production on at the La Mama Courthouse, presented by La Mama and uh, Asia Topa, which is the... Uh, uh, a new triennial of Asian uh, Asia Pacific performing arts, uh, running from January through to April. So there's a it's a big program and there's lots to see. Um, I guess uh, Pippa, a question for you: How important is it to have initiatives like Asia Topa in terms of fostering not only new work here in Australia but these new international collaborations as well? Oh, I think it's absolutely vital, and I think particularly at the moment with. in the kind of political environment that we're in, the idea of what it means to host artists from other countries, to welcome them to our shores uh, and to really negotiate what that intercultural... Uh, relationship is, is really very exciting. The other thing to mention about this show, which I think is also fabulous, is the the range of funding that we've got, which includes the very controversial catalyst money. And there's something wonderful about thinking that Australia is funding and supporting and welcoming very difficult subjects and saying that that's the role of the arts in this country is to be able to shine a light on difficult subjects and encourage conversation. In the instance of this production, uh, as we said, inspired by Australia imprisoning Indonesian boys um, in an adult jail and the ramifications of that, but told uh, from uh, the Indonesian family's perspective when they fear that their young son has drowned at sea. Therefore, then we move underwater uh, and uh, it becomes... I look, I'm really intrigued. I'm really, I'm kind of like making mental notes. Do not miss this production. So The Age of Bones or its other title? Jalam Belalong. I'm going to have to master Indonesian. That's kind of uh, clearly. It's our closest neighbour. Yeah. Wow. It's, uh, what about Papua New Guinea? Does that count? It does count. One okay. of our closest neighbours. Okay, cool, good. Um, so The Age of Bones is on as part of Asia Topa at the La Mama Courthouse, 205 Faraday Street, Carlton. It opens tonight and runs through until the 5th of March. You can find out times and de- uh, more details at lamama.com.au or you can go to asiatopa.com.au as well to book tickets to see uh, the La Mama and Asia Topa uh, production, an Indonesian-Australian co-production, The Age of Bones. I've been talking to co-producer Pippa Bailey and co-director Alex Galeanzi. Thank you both for coming into Triple R. Thanks so Thank much, you. Richard. Adam Simmons is a composer, a musician, a performer, uh, and is presenting a kind of series of concerts at 45 Downstairs under the banner title of The Usefulness of Art. Adam, welcome to Triple R. Thank you very much, Richard. So, is art useful? Oh, yes, 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 yes. I reckon it's useful. Why? Uh, Well, I've been uh, brainwashed by reading Rodin (laughs) and his thoughts about the usefulness of the artist. And I figure, well, if the artist is useful, then the art must be useful too. But uh, it, but reading his thoughts uh, just helped me as a young uh, undergrad at VCA kind of go, all oh, right, why am I doing this? What use am I to society? I kind of, uh, I don't know what, you know, why should I be allowed to do this? And I've come, come to the place, or that, at that point it was like, well, yeah, art is useful. It does bring happiness. Um, the the artist, as Rodin um, defines it, is the person who takes pleasure in what they do. 
and he reckons there are bricklayer and masonry artists and carpenter artists and but there's a lot of people who don't take pleasure in what they do and i know a few uh i'm doing the finger thing artists that uh do not enjoy what they do which to me suggests they should just get out of it exactly yeah it's interesting because i mean obviously my day job working at arts hub uh, i write a lot of stories about art and culture and sometimes i'm writing just about the work sometimes i'm writing about the value of work and the, the, the idea that art is uh, just on its own level aesthetically is beautiful and that brings – some people will uh, put a, a financial value on that. Other people will have a, an aesthetic value. But then there's all the other aspects of art that are valuable, such as art in schools teaching kids about um, emotional intelligence yep, yep. and how to think analytically and, and study, empathy. And, and, yeah, empathy, yeah. you know – some of that stuff has really come more to the fore in my thinking over the last few years and it was a study uh, about the development of empathy um, in kids that listen to music in England a number of years ago and uh, and my cynical um, conspiracy theory is that because uh, I wrote a suite called The Usefulness of Art um, around 2009, 2011, something like that and which was first performed by Origami. And it was kind of a response to uh, a number of music courses getting shafted at the time around the country. And, and it was kind of like, oh, somebody actually knows that music helps develop empathy and bring people together. And it was a time when there was uh, quite a bit of, you know, it's been ongoing, but, you know, refugees... Um, being labelled illegal and all that kind of thing. You know, we don't need an empathetic society if it's to be um, driven by fear. And so I reckon, yeah, it's... There's some useful bits about art. I would look, certainly yeah, no yeah. arguments from me, otherwise I wouldn't have been <laughs> uh, hosting this program as a volunteer yeah, for the last kind of 13 years. Yes. But now... In terms of your music, one of the things that fascinates me is that yes, you're a, you're a, you're a trained musician, as you said, VCA grad. So, um, but you also have this kind of playful avant-garde approach to your work as well. So, yes, you can you can play serious music and jazz and so forth. Yeah, yeah. And then you also have the Adam Simmons Toy Band, which, as it suggests, plays toys. So, yeah, toy yeah. pianos and squeaky things. Yeah, and yeah. how did that part of your practice come about? Well, well, I should say we're not kind of active these days. The up, the upcoming concert is with the Creative Music Ensemble, which is but we're, the piece was written originally for the toy band, so we're still using the toys. And so, in a way, the use of toys came before the toy band, and it's extending beyond. And it comes out of doing that kind of experimental avant-garde, extended techniques on your instruments where you. Kick, uh, do the key clicks and you blow through or you pull the mouthpiece off and blow through, um, you know, raspberries. And, uh, you know, there's, in that avant-garde, you're trying to get the most out of the instrument and go, well, what can I do, um, you know? What can it do that is more than just a straight blow through a saxophone, I've got, I've for example? Some, I've got a hand and, I've, you know, I can make little sounds with my hand, you know, like it, it's sound. So how can you use this tool in front of you to create sound? If that tool happens to be a rubber chicken, what can you do with it? And, but I love, the, I love the way that a toy helps 
bring an audience into the music and into the sound world in a different way. Because there's sort of an aspect that, oh, I could do that. And, uh, and there's a sense of nostalgia where you go back to a childhood. So it disarms the audience a bit and they start listening to things that they wouldn't normally and perhaps listening differently as well because they're more aware of a diversity of sound rather than just, I'm going to go along to a piano kind of yeah, recital, yeah, for example. Yeah. yeah. Now, speaking of piano recitals, though, the uh, perf- upcoming performance at 45 Downstairs featuring the Adam Simmons Creative Music Ensemble, you're also performing with Michael Kieran Harvey, who's yes. a kind of uh, a very established and, and, dare I say, serious piano soloist. He's, he's ridiculously he's, serious and uh, virtuosic and uh, you know he's he's one of Australia's great international artists, um, but totally eccentric, totally off the wall. And um, I, the idea of the concerto in the beginning was sort of this contrast between kind of the classical, more rigid. Yes, you read the dots, and the toy band, which can be uh, much more uh, anarchic and you know. Freeform, improvised. Reasonably, but I write the music knowing that probably some of the people will not actually be playing it at that time because they'll be busy doing something else. So it's kind of you write the music trying to uh, make sure that there's a backup somewhere else in the ensemble. So it was that contrast between the two. But actually it's sort of it's just different perspectives on the same thing with Michael. Um, how did, he's, he's a hard one to control. How did you and Michael first kind of meet and first develop the idea of collaborating and playing together? Uh, that was uh, Lloyd Jones, um, a director, a uh, show that we both were part of, oh, I don't know, early 2000s. A, at La a Mama, show at La Mama, yeah. Um, with about 30 people in the cast, which leaves about no room for the audience. And... Um, because Michael's a long-time friend of Lloyd's and I think he'd done a little bit of work before that. I'd done a couple of shows with Lloyd um, and I it was quite daunting to know that Michael was going to be there as well because when I was at VCA as a student, I'd, I had my saxophone lesson right after Michael was teaching some uh, some students and so I was, I'd sort of walk in uh, and there's this you know super piano player and I just, you know... So it's very strange to be sharing a stage with him many years later. But my role in that show was actually to kind of unplay the saxophone. So I spent all the time just farting and blowing and cleekly and just... You know, no traditional, no classical saxophone, no no even jazz saxophone. And, and, uh, and at the end of it he said, Oh, you should write a piece for me. <laughs> We should do something together. I'm like, what? <laughs> it does seem an unlikely pairing in some ways, but it's one of the things that, that music is about expression. So the the idea of then going a a, a classical piano, uh, a classical piano is going no, compose something that I that is expressive. I can I can yeah, see yeah. the logic in it, yeah. even though it also has me scratching my head slightly it's, at the same time. Uh, it was really daunting. It took me ages to get around to it. We met on another occasion with Kate Neal, composer, where I actually did play more legitimately. So, and he still repeated the invitation. Um, so I thought, right, okay, he's serious. But I tried to really, like you, you mentioned, uh, the music's about expression, 
And that's, for me, one of the, th- the useful things about art is that you ex- that sharing of expression of... Because it's really hard to actually know what someone else is thinking. And words get so far, but different mediums, different art forms help communicate other ideas that, you know, that's... Uh, that are a necessary way of trying to help connect each other. So in trying to write for Michael, who is renowned for being able to just play the dots amazingly and people write impossible things and he just does them. So I figured, right, I I can't write the impossible because other people will do that better. I just want to make you think. And and he has beautiful touch. He's you, you listen to him play Bartok or something, and you're hearing three, four, five parts coming out, all feeding in a, around each other, and uh, you know they're all separate lines being played, and they're all clear, and they're all feeding in around. Whereas my piano playing is just you know I stick them all down at the one time, and it just goes clunk, <laughs> and so trying to find ways to explore that touch. Or get him to make decisions. Okay, cool. I've got this. What do I do with it? And I figure that's kind of an interesting thing for a classical musician who usually just follows the piece of paper um, to have decisions put in front of them and be, okay, right, I get to share the responsibility. So, which is sort of a theme that develops in later works across the year as well, where uh, I try to find ways for the musicians to be engaged in in what they're doing, making choices, sharing a sense of responsibility, you know, which comes from being an improviser, I guess. Um, but uh, it's nice to also have a structure and some parameters to work within because then you can always step outside and <laughs> be subversive. Uh, so this series of concerts under the, the, the title of The Usefulness of, of Art is happening... Uh, throughout the year at 45 Downstairs, located at 45 Flinders Lane in Melbourne. The first of the concerts is Concerto for Piano and Toy Band to be performed by the Adam Simmons Creative Music Ensemble with Michael Kieran Harvey. Uh, This is its Melbourne premiere, a one-hour concerto uh, being performed from next Thursday, the 2nd of March, through to Sunday, the 5th of March uh, at 7.30 each night, except the Sunday where it's a matinee at 3pm. So kids are welcome. Oh, and kids under 12 are free even. Uh, Even better. Yeah. Yeah. So happening at 45 Downstairs, 45 Flinders Lane, Melbourne, you can book at 45downstairs.com or you can pick up the phone and call 9662-9966. If you want a little bit more info, you can go to Adam's website, which is adamsimmons.com. And should just mention that there's a big long flight of stairs down to 45 Downstairs. So if you require um, wheelchair access or you have difficulties moving, uh, uh, and as- ascending and descending flights of stairs, then call the uh, call forty five downstairs nine double six two double nine double six to arrange access via Spark Lane at Which the is rear. Easy. Yeah, very, very easy. Basically, just walk in off the lane and into the venue. So, yeah. So, as I said, a concert series, The Usefulness of Art, the first being the Concerto for Piano and Toy Band, uh, featuring the Adam Simmons Creative Music Ensemble and pianist Michael Kieran Harvey from next week, the 2nd through to the 5th of March. 45downstairs.com for more info. Adam, thanks for coming in. No worries.
My next guest has joined me in the studio to talk about a show called All This Living, which is on at the Butterfly Club in Carson Place in the city. Uh, it kicked off last night and is running through until the 26th of February. Camilla Blunden, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. So this is a play about the experience of ageing, about uh, the the cultural fear of ageing perhaps and as well as the the invisibility of of older women talk to us about the work and why you created it well i'm based in canberra and uh, the street theater in canberra had a, a program called the hive program where we write things and they advertise for actors to write a solo show and I knew what I wanted to write straight away because I wanted to deal with my age group. I'm 72 and we had lots of chats amongst each other about what goes on when you reach that age, the roles that disappear for you in theatre, etc. And then, of course, how society looks at ageing and how society looks at things like sex, death, etc., how we're all meant to kind of disappear a little bit. We're not meant to be sexual. And society doesn't really talk about death in the way perhaps it used to talk about it. It is part of life. So that promoted me to find some focus groups and start to talk to a broad range of women across cultures as well. And, of course, when they got together in their groups, like all women, they were great. They talked about everything. And in that coming up... The question of being noticed or being invisible was very predominant through most of the groups. I'm not saying I necessarily feel it. Not everyone does. But, and it's partly my friends say because I'm tall, um, but for other reasons as well. But it was a very dominant thing. And I thought, well, that's a good starting point for the character that she's going through a bit of a crisis and thinking she is disappeared. And so through that, I then started writing it with a very good dramaturg, Peter Matheson, and did it over a period of time, got funding and put it on. And we've already done two seasons in Canberra and we've been on the road a bit in New South Wales to small country towns. And we're about to do that again when we finish here. Fantastic. So, so yes, ageing. And some of the men have said to me they feel the same thing. So it's not just perhaps women, but more so because we do disappear too much from the screen and the stage. It's a conversation yeah. I've had often over the years with... With, uh, female actors, they kind of hit 40 or so and suddenly vanish for 20 years until they, yes. they're old enough to be considered character actors in inverted commas. Uh, and so the disheartening uh, impact of that and for for any uh, woman older in life, just in literally in everyday life, waiting to be served at a cafe, for example, yes, that's right. and, and being overlooked. Yeah. Yes. I had lots of stories like that and some of them got incorporated into the character's story. And, of course, because she's going through a crisis, she started seeking a few of the older stories, the mythical stories. So she found a few mythical women who were able to help her along her journey a little bit and help her jump through a few hoops because there are some amazing mythical women across all sorts of cultures. So the ones I found related to the journey that Jay was taking, but I could have gone on using heaps more. This is just one story and uh, because I'm Anglo, it's from an Anglo point of view, 
When we look at things like European films and so on, for example, you see a whole range of people, a whole range of faces and so on, in a way you don't in a lot of the Hollywood movies yeah. and so on, much less. So we know that in different places it's different. Australia's a bit more in some ways, like the American culture for some reason, uh, in terms of um, the way people deal with that idea of death and so on. So um, I think for people coming to see it, it sounds a little bit serious, etc. It is, but at the same time, she's living, <coughs> excuse me, in the everyday world and there's a lot of little everyday tidbits in it and there's a lot of humour in it and a lot of highly strong moments in terms of where she's at and what's actually happening to her. She gets there. She gets through it all in the end. She's feeling a lot better by the end than at the beginning. Now, Camilla, in terms of uh, creating this piece, am I right in thinking this is your first major piece as a solo writer? Yes, I have. I've been, uh, over the years, I ran a company called Women on a Shoestring Theatre Company and we toured nationally a lot with all our work and that was often developed, you know, from... uh, uh, discussion and then working with writers and with actors. So either I have been a director and I direct as well. So either as a director or an actor, I've been involved in numerous projects like that, creating things. But, but I've never fr- actually written a single show <laughs> for myself because in that process, I've always been working with writers. Yeah. So that was a bit of a leap forward and it was not easy sitting in front of a machine typing words on a page. <laughs> but the dramaturg as such that he's had a huge background in all sorts of theatre so he understood that as well so that was really good yeah how different did you find the process of sitting down and having to yes write this work uh, on your own based admittedly on the inspi- inspiring conversations you'd had yes, and w- yeah. of other people versus the the devised process where actors might create a work in a room and then you go and write that up for example yes. it, it kind of it sounds like there was a, a, a great jump in terms of your creative practice. Yes, it was a jump to do that and to be the one who had the responsibility of getting the words on the page and the action, you know, and thinking about what was actually happening. Because if you've been an actor, you if you're writing like that, you've all, you're naturally doing things in terms of thinking what's happening physically possibly at that point and because of the sort of work that I've worked on there's been a huge range of performance styles you know where I for example I've worked with dancers and I've worked with musicians a lot in the past I've worked with material which we've researched I've worked with material which we've invented so it was sort of bringing all of that together and thinking yes and I've still got to get words on a page as and well and you're performing it as well yes and I'm performing it too so a, a solo show so you don't have dancers and other actors no, and so on I as don't. well so it's all on you <laughs> that's right it is is but that liberating or terrifying no it's 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 fine. It's liberating. I have done, uh, you know, written plays, which were solo plays before. So it wasn't as if I've never been on stage by myself before. But I've also been in a lot of things with a lot of other people as well. So it is different and the responsibility is there for you, but it's enjoyable. And with this one, I have direct contact 
with the audience. Normally I play it with the audience sitting around on three sides, but we can't do that at the Butterfly Club. So it's a little bit different in that way. And normally as well, while we're touring and while we were in Canberra, we had a Q&A chat afterwards because the character Jay is really telling the audience directly stories and making contact with them, you know, through the piece, through the stories. So that's another relationship that occurs in the space and it leads very naturally at the end into a bit of a chat and and a lot of women then tell me some of their stories, which is fantastic. I imagine some of those conversations will be happening down at the bar at the Butterfly Club afterwards, yes. perhaps. Yes, and it's not just for older people. I have to make that clear because... I'm trying to reach across generations. I mean, I enjoy going to see things with young people in them. I enjoy going to see people with, you know, middle-aged people. I enjoy people. And I think that there's too much limitation in terms of, you know... This is for you, you think, and no oh, one else. it's for or... you and no one else. No, we're all human beings. We all live. We all live. Some of us live to be older than others, etc. So... It's to do with that too. And thus the title of the play, All This Living. That's so, right. Yeah, um, I was over in Perth uh, on the weekend and one of the plays that I saw there uh, was The Gabriels, a portrait of an American family, which was three plays performed back to back over eight and a half hours. And one of the, the fascinating and delightful things about that was that the, uh, five of the six characters were women, uh, one in her 80s, all the rest in their in their uh, 50s or early 60s. And it struck me how rare it is to see, uh, in, to quote the, the title of the third play, women of a certain age on stage. And again, kind of, so combating that notion in, of invisibility invisibility, sharing stories across generations is such an important part of what art can do. Uh, it's changing and, you know, there's a bit of a push. Wits, women in theatre and screen, screen. Yeah. who are really pushing now to get more writers, more producers, more directors, more actors and more real roles for women, not just adjuncts to men. Yes. So I think, you know, it's we've been working on it since the 70s, but it's leaping forward a bit perhaps, and I'm really happy that that's actually happening too. Me too. All This Living is on at the Butterfly Club. It opened last night and it's running through until the 26th of February. If you've not been to the Butterfly Club before, it's at 5 Carson Place, Melbourne, off Little Collins Street, in on the block between Swanson and Elizabeth, as well as having the best collection of kitsch in the country. It also has an excellent bar and an excellent program of theatre, cabaret and comedy. Uh, so All This Living, uh, written and performed by Camilla Blunden. Uh, it's its Melbourne premiere season. So uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday at 7pm plus a 5.30 performance on Sunday Sunday as well. Sunday too, yeah. Yeah. So two performances on one day on Sunday. Yes, I know. A little gruelling. Energy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And look, you said you've been, uh, you've done two seasons already in Canberra plus the regional tour of New South Wales. So it really seems like this is a show that's resonating with audiences across across the country. We made it so it's totally portable too and that's important because if you go somewhere like where we did, delegate for example you're in one of those old arts halls in the town and uh, you have to be adaptable you played on the floor not on the stage etc and then we played for example in gunny in in the old courthouse which is a heritage building so we designed it so that it could do that because to me that's really important i've done a lot of that in the past touring to country towns as well as playing in 
places like Sydney, Melbourne and so on. And um, at the moment, there's a bit of a talk about that going on with Lindy Hume yes, reading her, it. Yes, her platform paper. So it'll be yeah. interesting to see what happens. We'll see where that conversation yes, goes as well. Yeah. If you would like to book to see all this living at the Butterfly Club, you can call 9663-8107 or jump online www.thebutterflyclub.com. Uh, and you can learn more about Camilla and her practice at www.camillablondon.com. All this living is on until the 26th of February. Camilla, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.